Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on April 11th, 2019 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Kai Cheng Tom, Susan Glickman, Fawn Parker, and Zalika Reed Benta. Just so you know that this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. First up is Fawn Parker. Fawn Parker is an MA candidate in the field of creative writing at the University of Toronto. She is the author of Set Point from Art Books 2019 and a poetry collection coming forth from Palimpsest Press. She is co-founder of Bad Moods Magazine and Bad Books Press. Fawn is the recipient of the Irving Layton Award in Fiction, the A.B. Bennett Emerging Writers Award, and the Adam Penn Gilders Scholarship in Creative Writing. Please welcome to the mic, Fawn Parker. Truly so called, a great artist has passed. I'm taking it, Jonas told me on the 504A, because it's a good line. You didn't think of it, he said. You said it, and you would have let it go. I, the curator, saw the value. Yes, but it's mine, I said, because I said it. The line was as follows. I'm looking for another Monet with a hideous body of work. We were preparing our speeches for the funeral of esteemed poet Peter Norman of similar once-removed relation to us both. Jonas, too, was a poet, or so he fancied himself to be, and I was no poet, so there was another thing working in his favor vis-a-vis the thieving of the line. I hope someone hears it right now, I said, and that they sell it to the bigwigs in New York. You think the line's that good, eh? Jonas tried now to needle me into submission when all in all he just wanted the line. The line, he told me, once a ways back, but also on the 504A, the line is everything. A picture is a thousand words, but a line is infinite. There's a line drawn straight through the history of time. You only want the line, I said, because you think it's Frank-like. Frank who, said Jonas. Frank Herbert, author of Dune. Poor Anne Frank. Oh, that other one with the battlefield and the moon? O'Hara, I said, and I'm not even saying it does. I'm saying you think everything should, and any time you like the sound of a thing, you think it does. Ashbury, said Jonas, and Berrigan, Ted Berrigan. I've been branching. Not too far, I said. Those are just apples off the Frank tree. Jonas said, you're suggesting a mentor-style relation, are you? And I said, oh, no, I'm no poet. I don't know enough to make a claim. Funny how you and me, a Philistine and a poet, get so tickled taking the streetcar to and fro. Even be faster for you to go underground. I'm not a Philistine, and I like to have the good, strong signal up here for my phone, I said, and well, I'm offended by Philistine. Sorry, Jonas apologized, so can I have the line or what? Take it, I said. I'm overwhelmed by melancholy, and nothing is of any value to me. <laughs> now, he said, now you're sounding like an artiste. Perhaps you were right to take offense just now. Oh, I'm long over it, I said, but no more lines. You can't have any of that. I don't want the melancholy, I said Jonas. There's enough of that in my work, and besides, you didn't do much in the way of curious execution. I'm looking into doing my own work, I said, O'Hara-like, something like Ashbury meets Berrigan. The one with the battlefield and the moon was Stanford, said Jonas. I hate to forget a thing, but I love to remember. And speaking of, could you refresh me on your line? I seem to have forgotten. No. Now you're squirreling, said Jonas. I'm focusing, I said. Focusing on what, said Jonas, on sorting your little nuts in the ground? Good one, Jonas, I said. I'm composing my thoughts. Have you forgotten that a great artist has passed? R.I.P., said Jonas. Rest in poetry. Speaking of which, buddy, I've been thinking, can I borrow something of yours, something nice, so I look sharp, so I can impress old Pete? Really, Jonas, I said, really? You think Pete's looking down? You're telling me you're one of those believer types? Is that what you're saying? Look, baby, I just want to look good, okay? Besides, it's what Petey would have wanted. Don't you think he always wanted to see us with the academic girlies? And you know this death house is going to be crawling with them. Death house, Jonas, I said, geez. So refresh me, silver play on the line. No more squirreling. 
I said it, I said, and I said it in a moment of audienceness, and now you've added this readership, a self-awareness like a qualitative boring on quantitative value, and now, yeah, I'm squirreling, I want the thing for myself. You're an individual taken to improvisation, said Jonas. You get inspired because you leave yourself open to the hit of inspiration. Yes, and so what, I said, what's this got to do with the line? The shall we say bad Monet of the gallery, said Jonas. There's where the realness is, and you've got it, the realness, and I'm green with envy, absolutely green. Besides, he said, besides, you weren't even putting it in the speech, you were tangentially elsewhere, and I, the great connector, put two and two together. So now what's being returned to me is that what's happening, am I the owner of the line again, I asked Jonas. Have it, he said, I don't give a good goddamn, really. Well, I didn't mean to piss you off, Jonas. I pissed me off, said Jonas. I'm sorry, Jonas, I said, I'm just a Philistine. I didn't mean to get you pissed about poetry. I'm a poet, said Jonas. Getting pissed is like having an orgasm. Getting pissed is like carving up tender duck. Earlier you said audiencelessness, and I thought it was a poor choice, though now I'm warming to it. You're still acting pretty pissed, Jonas, I said. I'm a leech, said Jonas. You're no leech, Jonas, and if you are a leech, why don't you leech something like the dictionary, and you'll write lunch poems one dozen times over. I'm a leech, and the government is the salt on my back, said Jonas. See, there's a line, I said. It's no line, it's a flag. A white flag, eh, Jonas? Yeah, a white flag, said Jonas. I surrender. A lull, and then he, for the most part, stopped looking pissed, and he said, anyway, so what's with the melancholy? Oh, I don't know, I said, just Pete and all that, and I'm sorry about what I said earlier when I said what I said about the dictionary. I didn't mean to monkeys on typewriters your craft as if that's some sort of magic pill, okay, Jonas? I understand it's not like you're building with pieces here, per se. Monkeys on typewriters as verb, eh, said Jonas? I like it. Listen, said Jonas, hear me out. You, uh, what say we call it, you non-poets, how about that? No more Philistinian talk. You non-poets, you do this all the time. You, like, drop these whatchamacallits, these little, uh, jewels, because you're not too deep up your own behind to hear the ring of the magic bell. In fact, your head is about as far from your ass as it gets. You might want to get that elongated torso checked out by a medical professional, just a side note. <laughs> now, see, us, we, the royal we, the artisans of poetry, we can't access it anymore, you see. We can't unsee the intricacy of the word. The letter, even, it's flowery. We're in the business of flowers. We're botanists. No, that's not right. We're more humble florists. See, I'm even doing it in describing the thing. Oh, God save the self-proclaiming poet. What I'm saying is you don't want to see it, okay? Once you see it, you've been thrown out. And once you're out, you're out, and you can't get back into the thing. Or in, maybe, is what I'm going after. In the ass. <laughs> you're right, Jonas. You might be doing a little arranging. Arranging, said Jonas. Arranging the bouquet, I said. Oh, for f see, now you've done it again. I want that one, too. Can I have it, buddy? Can I have that line, too? Surely you could do that, Jonas. You could come up with another line like that. Surely no, he said. Contextually, no. Because you're a poet, Jonas, the lines are lost on you? Without a trace, he said. All right, Jonas, you can have that one, and you can have the Monet. Thanks, buddy. You're really doing me a big one here. The crowd will love me. Actually, I said, actually, now I'm ready to get back to the melancholy. How about that? Go for it, said Jonas, on all ears. But wait, first and foremost, I don't want any poaching. Promise me that, Joe. You got it, buddy. I'm all ears. No hands, no pen, no paper. Pass right through me like water. Well, now, if you're not even listening, Jonas, I'm not spilling it right here on the, on the 504A. I'm not hanging back to clean up the guts when you think I'm a lowly janitor. You think I don't need some, uh, like, analysis here? Lay it on me, buddy. Lay it like an egg. Oh, but hey, man, we're rolling up to your stop, eh? You notice that? Oh, I don't care, I said. Don't care, said Jonas. Don't give a hoot. A hoot, said Jonas. What is that, East Coast? I always hear that from the young Acadians. It's something or other, I said, just like everything else. 
Hey, I was just thinking, oh, so sorry to interrupt, but I was just thinking, you ever think about how a painting can't be plagiarized? Like, yeah, I know you can fool the masses and all that, like designer bags, like cubic zirconia, but the written word, right, the written word can be copied literally, like, identically, like, speaking from the perspective of the quote-unquote new world, we're copying and pasting, right? None of it's safe. And Jonas, I said, that's the freedom of the word. Freedom, said Jonas. Freedom in what way? It's a prison of injustice. It's my word against his. And, uh, hey, who are you now educating me on the word? Prison of injustice, Jonas. Now, if we're talking about meaning, that has absolutely none. And is it not you who is the, uh, the his in this word against word scenario? The his, said Jonas. The plagiarist, I said. Hypothetically, baby, I'm talking in the ultimate rights and wrongs of things. Yeah, I'm leeching. Yeah, I'm the one who's squirreling. I'm poaching. This here is a dark world we live in. And let me tell you, if you want to be the only player in the big game, then you're a fool's fool. Sure, you can skate, baby, but there's no winning when you're the only man on the ice. You patronize me, Jonas, but you just want to hear the sound of your own voice. Surely, with such a look in his eyes, Jonas was about to clock me one, but a man slithered between us, real closest thing to Jesus you'd ever seen on the 504A type guy. I'm just saying, I shouted to Jonas, sort of through and around the head of Jesus, I'm just saying maybe the cruelty is a bit of a shadow situation. Maybe if you step out of the path of the light, you'll be able to see it. See what, said Jonas. Oh, I don't know. I just said it, I said. What, said Jonas. What, said the mouth of Jesus. And then the body of Jesus turned to face neither myself nor Jonas. And from the mouth came the phrase, what, again. And then it said, you fools, you fools, fools. Tuck those whiskers into your cheek. I am the governor. And if I find you a rat, I will clip your claws and shave you with them. Wow, said Jonas. Holy mother of wow. What a line, eh, Jonas? Truly, said Jonas. Truly, what a line. You think he's going to shave me, baby? You think he thinks I'm vermin? Might just, I said, might just think. Might shave you clean as the day you were born. Naked as a tabula rasa, said Jonas. Might be what a man like me needs. Might be, I said. Not too good of a look showing up to old Petey's service, not a trace of scruff if you ask me, said Jonas. Petey didn't understand, I said, and besides, he's dead. Anyway, I said, Jonas, buddy, it's been a slice, but I'm thinking it's about exit time, and I'll take the rest of my trip up by foot. By foot, he said, at this rate, you're going to be a fat hour behind schedule. Frankly, I don't know how you live like this. Frankly, I said, there you go again with the Franks. I wish you'd get off that one. And what's an hour at the end of the day when at least I let the mind go loose? Nothing of it, buddy, said Jonas. Just like to get where I'm going. And Jonas, I said, and Jonas, that's why you're a rat. Laps around the sun, said the mouth of Jesus. And the body launched itself out from between us. Laps around the sun, Jonas, I said. And Jonas said, yeah, uh, laps around the sun. So our second leader for today is Zalika Reed Benta. Zalika Reed Benta is a born and bred Toronto writer, TV fanatic, and cheeseburger enthusiast. In 2011, George Elliott Clark recommended her as a writer to watch. Her work has appeared on the CDC website, in the TOK7 anthology, and in a Apogee Journal. She is an alum of the 2017 Banff Writers Studio and received an MFA in Fiction from Columbia University in 2014. Her work explores matters of intergenerational cycles, race, identity, and culture through the lens of second-generation Caribbean Canadians. Her collection of linked short stories, Frying Plantain, is currently on offer and she is working on a fantasy young adult novel. Please welcome Zalika Reed Benta. Thank you. I'm going to be reading 
a little bit from uh, a story that's in the collection. It's called Snow Day. Uh, so here we go. At the end of third period, just before lunch, Principal Carrington declared the afternoon a snow day and told all of us to go home. Outside, the streets were dusted like powdered sugar, and the snowbanks around the sidewalks were tiny white and gray mounds that reached only as high as my ankles. But we were told that a little after midday, easterly winds would be blowing through the city. We were told that gusts would threaten to rip, tre to rip trees out from their concrete and would bring with them the type of snow you wish for at Christmas, the type of snow that whites out the blueness of the sky, that forces cars to crawl inch by inch on the highway because whiteness is all anyone can see. And Principal Carrington was kicking us out before we could be trapped inside to wreak havoc on our school. Ah, yeah, my class started to howl. Even I joined the others when they banged their fists on the desk. I was an extended French, and all of my classes today were with Madame Rizzoli. I would have wished for an earthquake to get out of spending even one more minute trying to translate my thoughts into another language. Snow day, snow day, snow day, we chanted. Taisez-vous, Madame Rizzoli snapped, putting her hands on her hips. You're all eighth graders, act like it. We pressed our smiling lips together, and our shoulders shook with silent laughter. Snow day, snow day, snow day, we whispered. J'ai dit, taisez-vous. Principal Carrington was still talking, her voice garbled by the PA system. Those of you who have younger siblings in the school, and those of you whose parents checked off, stay at school in the event of a weather emergency, please report to the office. The rest of you get home safely. Madame Rizzoli turned away from the PA and faced the front of the room. Okay, everyone, walk, walk to your lockers, and collect your things. Ademé. Ademé, we repeated. The entire class ran, rushing to the door all at once, ramming against each other, trying to be the first ones to spill out into the hallway. I waited at my desk for the crowd to thin out so I could leave at my own pace, without pushing against anyone. I had nowhere to hurry to. Rochelle joined me as I headed out of the classroom and told me all of her friends were going to hang out at her place for the rest of the day. Was I coming? I can't. My mom checked off the box, I said. So? Just leave. You know these white bread teachers don't give a shit about what we do. The rest of our friends, Anita, Jordan, and Ashani, were at their lockers packing their things. Anita came over to us, twirling her straightened hair into a ponytail, high up on her head. Not fret it, Shell. You know she's not going to come. She too afraid of mummy. Got her on lockdown and shit. She can't even run across the street for buy a patty at lunch. Kara, I live two streets over from you, Rochelle said. Just come. I had never been to Rochelle's house when her mother wasn't around, and never for more than a couple of hours. My mother always called me home way before the other girls had to leave. And every time I was forced to leave, something good would happen. Truth or Dare, or a scary movie on TV, or a game of Nicky Nicky Nine Doors. The next day, they'd all laugh about a moment I'd missed. I'd smile with them, and then they would look at me, all of their eyebrows raised. What are you laughing at? You weren't even there. They would continue to giggle, and I would bite my lip and watch. To stay in the group, thick skin was a must. Being able to take an insult was respected just as much as being able to throw shade. Ishani and Jordan tilted their heads up in my direction. So what's going on, Kara? Are you coming or what? Just come, said Rochelle. You never do anything. There were no adults in the hallway to see me leave, and Rochelle was right. The teachers here really didn't care about you if you weren't a student in their class anyway. It wasn't like my old school downtown on Ferndale Avenue, where everything and everyone was under watch. I had to beg my mother to transfer me out and away from those kids who were so eager to comment on my thick lips and grab fistful of my kinky hair. Bigger to let me do two years from of junior high around this neighborhood, around my friends from the block. If you get into any sort of trouble, I will pull you out and enroll you back downtown. You understand me, she said. That includes failing math. Yes, mummy. I looked back at, toward the stairs that led up to the office, rubbing my palms against the back of my neck. I told you she'd stay, said Anita, smirking. For once, I wanted to shock that smirk off her face. I turned to her. F*** it. 
Let's go. Anita narrowed her eyes, and I opened my locker and started packing my things. Everyone had left the hallway except for us. Rochelle and the rest were grouped together in a circle, wearing cropped winter jackets with fur-trimmed hoods. Their freshly relaxed hair were pulled their hair flushed relaxed or pulled back into relighted ponytails, their tight jeans tucked into suede boots that reached their knees. I didn't look as good in my clothes as they did in theirs. I had no meat on my bones, no pout to my lips, and they were all starting to curve into that thickness island boys love. Their eyebrows clapped in that flirty curiosity that got those boys' attention. They're fast, my mother would say, and one of them is going to end up pregnant. Just watch. Behind me, Jordan and Shani were arguing over how cute Jamar, the student council president, was. Is Shani rolling the R's with her tongue every time? She was Indian, like from India Indian, but told any boy who swaggered up to her that she was Trini, and explained that being born in Canada meant she couldn't put on the accent. Once we asked her what the capital of Trinidad was. When she said Tobago, we doubled over laughing. And later on that day, she pulled me to the side to ask what was so funny about her answer. I zipped up my jacket and I swung my knapsack over my shook. Hey, look at this, Kara, take charge. She thinks she had bad yell, but she break the rules today, said Jordan, laughing with Rochelle. She'll probably cave halfway to your house and run back to school, Shell. Quiet, Anita, you run your mouth too much, I said. What's this? Miss Canada, Guapa bust up the pot. What? You need to stop defaking it, Kara. I opened my mouth to respond, but felt my shoulders roll back, felt acrid spit fill my mouth, and knew I looked the way the women in my family did when they had a loud point to make. Trouble usually followed whenever they spoke in that stance, and I wasn't up for that. I kept walking. I always lost when I went head to head with Anita anyway. Her comebacks were harsher, and her accent was better. Real. Not something she had to put on. The rest of us just cobbled together what we could from listening to our parents or grandparents. But Anita was fresh from Jamaica. There was no competing, especially when I had the weakest accent out of all the Canadian borns. We pushed through the doors and stepped out into the schoolyard. The snow had started to fall, light and fast and fluffy. It was good for packing, for snowmen and snowballs, but I wasn't fooled. This was how all storms started, gently. We all tucked our hoods over our head, Rochelle and Anita squealing every time the snow dappled their strange strands of wetness. Already I could see the frizz coming up, kinky and tight, disrupting the silkiness they endured the hawk home for the night before. I grazed my palm over my scalp to see if my braids were still smooth. They weren't, but it could have been worse. Our school was right at Vaughn and Oakwood, hidden in one of the residential pockets in the center of the area where the Caribbean and Europe converged. Once you left the playground, you could turn right toward downtown and head to Little Italy on St. Clair West, but we were turning left up toward Eglinton West and Marley, Island Town. The walk in either direction was mixed with both groups, though. Bungalow windows boasted the colorful banners of the island flags, red, yellow, and green for Guyana, black, you, black, yellow, and green for Jamaica. Nonas and Nonos crowded every other porch, teetering on rocking chairs, drinking a beer or brio chinoto, their pitbulls snarling in the backyard. I can't get my hood to stay on, said Jordan, bunching up her jacket at the neck so the snow wouldn't get through the gap and melt on her chest. White girls can get their hair wet, said Rochelle. Stop fronting like you need a hood. The rest of us laughed, and Jordan gave us the finger. She was mixed. Her mother was black Guyanese and her father was Canadian. Seventh generation Canadian, too. Not Italian, Canadian, or Portuguese or anything. She'd come out a light, light milky brown, almost beige, with a small pointed nose, hazel eyes, and hair that was short and auburn and kind of curly, but mostly straight. The year before, she'd done a home spray tan to make herself darker, but ended up making herself orange instead. I was the only one who knew that. I don't know if it was because I didn't go to school with everyone yet, or because she knew I was too nice to say anything to anyone, but she told the others she couldn't go to school because of the flu. The snow was up to our shins now, and the wind had started slanting its fall, blowing it in our direction so that snowflakes pelted into our eyes and stuck our eyelashes together. I nuzzled my nose against my scarf and trudged forward. Some of the boys in our grade had decided to stay in the playground, whipping snowballs at each other, their screams and laughter too stubborn to be drowned out by the wind. Let's get fries from New Orleans Donuts, said Ashani. I'm starving. 
It's too cold to walk around. We can order pizza at my place, said Rochelle. With what money? You've got like $2 to your name, said Jordan. That's $2 more than you. And anyway, my mom left me money for an emergency. We're good. But I feel for fries. No one has said anything about stopping anywhere. I turned to them but tried to keep my face buried in my hood, more as a way to hide my panicked expression than to shield myself from the cold. Can't we just go to Shell's house? That's what we said we do. If you're going to be this way, you should just go back to school, said Anita. Well, I actually don't care where we go, said Rochelle, as long as we go Vaughn way. What's so special about Vaughn way, said Jordan? You always want to walk that way. I just like it. Yeah, but why? The high school was on Vaughn Road, and Rochelle was seeing a guy who went there, Chris Richardson, grade 10. Every girl knew Chris, every mother too. He never kept himself out of trouble. Trespassing, tagging buildings, mouthing off to cops who spot-checked him and his crew at the park or in front of the McDonald's or by the bus stop. But he was always quick to carry your mother's grocery bags to the door or help your grandmother find a seat in church. And he did it all with sly silences and toothy smiles. And if you were lucky, a wink behind your mother's back. Be careful of boys like him, they tell us. You're not, you need to stay clear from bright-eyed boys like that. Your dad was like that, said my mother. And how, and look how I turned out. The day Chris and Michelle first said hey to each other, we were at Vaughn Road Academy for a tour, trying to see if that was the school we wanted to spend the next four years at, me pretending like I actually had a say in where I ended up. He stopped her in the hallway, took her by the hand, and guided her to him, putting his hands around her waist as she stood in the space between his spread out legs. It was a move she was used to. Rochelle had that really fair rose brown complexion, that kind of red skin and shapely heaviness that made car slow down and girls up down. And she'd been dealing with hungry eyed boys since she was 10. While they were talking, I pretended to flip through my notes. My mother had told me to write down, far enough behind Rochelle that I, was that I wasn't interrupting, but close enough that if she wanted out, she could just turn to me and we'd walk away together, our arms linked. Chris had thought she was a transfer student, a sophomore like him, and only when he took down her number did Rochelle tell him she'd just turned 14 It was in grade 8. First she got quiet, then he left without even saying bye. But later on that night, she called me and said that he rung her up and they just finished a three-hour conversation. Just don't tell anyone, she said. It's a secret, okay? Sometimes we both pictured the lick she'd get if her mom ever found out about Chris. And Rochelle's mom didn't play around, she used the belt. My mom didn't like to use objects, she always said her hands were sharp enough. I tried to imagine keeping something like a boy from her, if a boy ever showed any interest in me. And I felt my body turn in on itself. Even the backs of my eyeballs throbbed as if they'd grown strained from searching for her open-palmed hand. It was how I felt when I let myself think that a storefront boy might be smirking at me. A panic would creep up on my body like a slow moving fever, and then for a brief moment, I'd feel glad that I wasn't sexy enough to keep a secret like Rochelle's. We crossed the street to New Orleans Donuts and stumbled over ourselves to get inside and out of the snow. The warmth of the shop was heavy with the smell of frying batter and the loud, and loud with the sounds of chatter mixed with pew-pews of the two arcade games by the washroom. It was packed. Each of the four corner tables had been seized by a school, from high school kids from Bond Road Academy to other students from our school to the kids from St. Thomas Aquinas, the, another Catholic school just up the street from ours. Rochelle scanned the store, her eyes slowly sweeping over the boys in oversized coats and fur trapper hats. When she found Chris over by the window in the corner across from the entrance, sprawled out and laughing with three of his friends, she took off her hood, shook her hair back, and looked the other way in a display of nonchalance. I was the only one who noticed the move and I couldn't tell if her plan was working. Chris was still focused on his friends, all of them bumping fists and shoving shoulders and shouting, that's respect, man, that's respect. But his attention seemed to have shifted somehow. Even though he never looked away from his group, it was like he knew ours had arrived. But maybe he did that with all the girls. Maybe he was just weighing his options. His friends appeared oblivious. I recognized all three of them. They didn't have reputations like Chris's, but they were the boys you went after if Chris wasn't into you. They were the boys Anita, Shani, and Jordan got. Ashani brought a large 
poutine and found us a dessert table in the middle of the store. We all started digging in our plastic forks, the, the fries nice and crunchy beneath the hot gravy and melting cheese curds. I'm just saying, said Jordan, I find snow romantic. What's romantic about this? We're in a f***ing storm. I'm with Anita on this one, said Ashani. Nothing romantic about freezing your ass off. Well, obviously not this kind of snow. Like the snow in that movie. You know, the one with that white dude. Oh yeah, the movie with that white dude. You guys know what I'm talking about. They meet at a store and spend an amazing night together or whatever, but she's white girl flaky, so she writes her number in a book that's going to be sold the next day, and like five years later, he's still trying to find that number, searching in bookstores and shit. Shell, you were with me when I saw it with Jackie. I knew what movie she was talking about. I'd seen it twice, but I joined in with the others since scared at her blankly. Anyway, they finally meet at an ice rink, and it's snowing, and they make out in the snow. You wouldn't want that? I would. And if not snow, then rain. We can't do snow or rain. Think about your hair. I took off my hood and rubbed the top of my head. Look at Shell. Everyone turned to Rochelle, whose hair was now in that stage between natural and straightened. Plus, the tangled curls spiraled out from behind her ears while the part of her hair that was still straight lay, atop, lay flat atop the kinks, giving her a bizarre mushroom head. She looks like a palm tree. F*** off, said Rochelle, but then she touched the back of her head and glanced at Chris's direction. Wait, do I really, though? Anita nodded and Rochelle rushed over to the washroom. I took another forkful of poutine and smiled at the gentle embarrassment I'd caused. No real harm was done, but the insult was enough to make Jordan snigger appreciatively, which earned me points. No one said anything for a bit, each of us focusing on our forks, finding each other for more cheese on our fries. Then Ashani spoke. Kara, I think Chris is looking at you. And his boy, Devin. I tried to keep my eyes from widening with alarm. What? Yeah, he's been staring at you since we came in, said Ashani. Maybe he's just checking for Shell, I said. They always check for her. Rochelle returned to the table, her hair in a high ponytail with a thin black headband around her edges to hide the frizz. What's going on? Chris and Devin are checking Kara out, said Jordan. I don't know what they're talking about, I said quickly, too quickly. Rochelle turned around and after a few seconds she looked back at me and giggled. They're checking for you for sure. You got eyes in your head? I didn't know what to do. I looked at Rochelle for some sort of sign, some kind of wordless communication to signal how I was supposed to react in this situation, but she didn't give me anything. Rotted, Devin is smiling at you. Smile back, Kara, said Jordan, or wave or something. He's looking at you. No, he's not, I said again. Anita spoke this time. Well, he won't be checking for you when you look so tore up, tore up. True, said Rochelle. Go to the bathroom, pat down your braids, put on some makeup or something for once. She rooted around in her knapsack and took out the makeup bag she hid from her mother. It was a slim case, pink and white, with wide petal flower designs all over. She handled it. She handed it to me. Guana. I don't know. They all shouted at me, Juan! The bathroom was small and kind of grimy. It only had two gray door stalls and the white ceramic tile was yellowed and dirt rubbed. The mirror above the sink was foggy, almost opaque. I could barely see my reflection, much less use it as a guide to put on makeup. I was about to go back to the table when the door swung open and Devin walked in. Let's move on to our third reader for the night, Susan Glickman. Susan Glickman is a lapsed academic who teaches creative writing and works as a freelance editor, primarily of academic books. Yes, she loves punctuation. <laughs> For the last three years, she has also been a full-time art student at Central Technical School in Toronto, which gave her the confidence she needed to illustrate her first novel, The Discovery of Flight. Last novel, sorry. Her hobbies are gardening, walking the dog, and making soup. What We Carry is her seventh book of poetry, the book that they'll be reading from tonight. And she has published 15 books, including novels for adults and children. Please welcome Susan Glickman. 
today I was shocked by the little white stuff that just decided to fall and taunt us. So I decided to start with a poem called Ice Storm, even though it's theoretically springtime. <clears throat> Ice Storm. Everything's exquisite, albeit decorative and dead as a Fabergé egg. I put on my old lady shoes and heel-toe it down the street. Over the pavement, there is ice. Over the ice, slush, over the slush, a layer of snow and sleety particulate, so that it is curiously like walking across sand, except not at the beach and not in summer, where, after all, there would be some vital signs. Ice does a plausible imitation of life. For one thing, it's so shiny you want to put it in your mouth, and, as solid H2O, it can provide hydration. Indeed, to the horror of botanists, some people feed their Phalaenopsis orchids three ice cubes a week, the same number my granddad went through in an evening's worth of scotch. On the rocks, he called it, which baffled me as a child. I was slow that way holding out for a version of the universe where each thing was one thing only, itself. We're not slow, exactly, more like credulous, because I already knew better, knew that the world I lived in and the one I was told about were not the same. First silver, then invisible. The angry person blames others, the sad person herself. But the iridescent dragonfly caught in the bullfrog's grin, the frog writhing in the raccoon kit's paws, the kit dangling from the talons of the great horned owl, feel nothing but terror. Terror which ascends to heaven as steam does from hot springs in winter. First silver, then invisible, and always without a sound. So a lot of poems about critters in this book, hence the little froggy on the cover. It's sort of about our relationship, human beings' relationship, historically, individual history, cultural history, and what we've done to the planet. So this sort of, it's kind of weighty. This one is about... Um, from a series of sonnets I wrote about animals which have gone extinct in the 21st century. The Black-Faced Honeycreeper, Hawaii. Rarest bird in the world, you remind me of chickadees who make the winter merry, black-capped, finch-billed, a fistful of airy fluff. But unlike them, you are solitary, hidden on remote Haleakala, in scarlet flowering trees 50 feet high, whose honey you sip, scanning the blue sky for predators. You can't see malaria. You can't sense this lack of snails, your favorite diet. Still, some instinct chased you here, out of range of pigs and cats. They say that you are strange. They say you are unusually quiet. Well, lonely as you are, why would you sing, you pretty thing, pretty thing, pretty thing? May Day. 
several drafts into a poem about the collapse of Rana Plaza, stifled by 40-degree heat, air full of choking fibers, clamor of a thousand sewing machines. Here it is spring, tender green of new grass, luminous silk of tulips, fuchsia, crimson, citrus yellow, the colors of salwar kameez, or the bright glass bangles of girls in the garment factories of Dhaka. 400 deaths, 800, the number rising daily. Were more corpses discovered, or did people finally realize their loved ones were never coming home? Having earlier refused to submit those dear names because writing made absence irrevocable. I would have said concrete, but the collapse of Rana Plaza proved, despite the persistence of the Roman Colosseum or the pyramids of Shanxi in China, how impermanent that blend of sand and water really is. The factory girls' bangles were also made of sand, sand, and fire, and their bones of calcium phosphate. The purpose of the human skeleton is to provide protection to the internal organs, the same way a building shelters its inhabitants. Fuchsia, crimson, citrus yellow. The colors of sawar kameez are baskets of spice in the markets of Bangladesh, where the girls shopped on their way home from Rana Plaza. Turmeric to ease swollen joints, cardamom to detoxify the body, cinnamon for respiratory problems, ginger and garlic to stimulate appetite and purify the blood. To make concrete more stable, blood is a frequent admixture. In solution, it creates air bubbles that protect against stress, though reinforcing concrete with steel is preferable, allowing for greater tensile strength and resistance. When the walls and floors of Rana Plaza collapsed, so did the bodies of the factory girls. There was no more resistance, no tensile strength, and blood flowed out onto the concrete. Under the gray paste of death, their garments shone, fuchsia, crimson, citrus yellow. The Orient Express. In the third class cabin of the Orient Express, elbow to elbow with bundles of cloth and leather in transit from who knows where to elsewhere, equally unknown. A couple of newlyweds uncorked a bottle of wine and feasted on salami, olives, crusty rolls, wrapped in wax paper by someone who loved them almost as much as they loved each other. Kitty Corner, an elderly Turk massaged his neck with a handkerchief soaked in eau de cologne. Closing weary eyes, he became invisible, just like me, traveling incognito. How I loved the anonymity. How I loved not having to explain anything to anyone anymore. Loved chatting in French and Greek and English and Spanish, though I knew no Spanish. Loved sleeping in the arms of a beautiful boy I would never see again. Loved waking at dawn to see Venice outside the window, in silver, in silence, beckoning like my future. I was 19 years old, and no one in the world knew where I was. 
and no one in the world knew who I was, including the boy. His arms were a doorway leading everywhere I wanted to go. This one's called, I'll end with, Nevermind. Mythology to the contrary, you are not a fallen angel, but a Cambrian worm, bilateral and segmented. A primitive tube running from mouth to anus, ferrying impulses through the neural net to a series of ganglia, the largest of which is your brain. It's not very glamorous, but it works most of the time, exactly as it did 600 million years ago. Which part of rational animal don't you understand? The second brain in your gut has a hundred million neurons, as many as there are in the brain of a cat. Do you listen to what it tells you? Of course not. You're far too evolved. The body speech is dumb, dumb as a cat who can see in the dark and survive a fall from 32 feet with nothing more than a chipped tooth. Cats listen to their guts. You don't. You are too busy counting numbers. I slipped a few in here to keep you busy. And collecting scientific terms, Cambrian and neuron, for instance. Consolation for your lack of control. All creatures that live in trees have an aerial writing reflex. All creatures that live in libraries like words. Words are peripheral to the job of the enteric nervous system, which is to keep you fed and happy and safe in spite of yourself. Get cozy in the library, why don't you? It's quiet in here, quieter than inside your own body, though you're deaf to the creaks and rumbles of your churning innards, the machinations required to keep you upright. Never mind. One day, the brain will grow tired of such distractions. It will stretch like a cat, lie down amidst its many folds, pull them over itself like a blanket, and go to sleep. Thank you. And our last reader of the night is Kai Cheng Tom. Kaching Tom is a writer, performer, lasagna lover, and a wicked and wicked witch based in Toronto. She is the author of several award-winning works, including a novel *Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars*, a dangerous trans girl's confabulous memoir, which I think is the book that you have over there. Am I right? Yes. There's two copies. Please grab them. Recently selected for Emma Watson's book club poetry collection, *A Place Called No Homeland*, which I personally cannot recommend enough. The children's book, From the Stars in the Sky to the Fish in the Sea, and the forthcoming essay collection, I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. Kai Cheng is the winner of the 2017 Dane Olivier Prize for Emerging LGBT Writers and a two-time Lombada literary finalist. She has been published widely in print and online and has performed in venues across the country. Please welcome to the mic, Kai Cheng. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks to the readers who went. Uh, first, it, it, those are hard shoes to fill. So this is Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir. It is not, in fact, 
my memoir, um, which everyone thinks it is. Because um, when you put memoir in the title of your book, they're like, oh, it's about you, but it really isn't. But it sort of is. I had to have plausible deniability for the events that happen in it. Um, this is a book about a young trans woman who runs away from home in a city, uh, which is a city called Gloom, where it's always raining. Um, and then she goes to a city called uh, the City of Smoke and Lights, uh, where everyone smokes and speaks French. Not a book about me, though. Um, and um, <laughs> she, um, so it's, uh, you know, real long story short, um, it is, it, it's a book that flips the script. Um, and it's about a group of trans women who decide to beat up straight guys for fun. I'm going to read a little bit about that. So this chapter is called On the Uses of Elbows and Knees. It doesn't take long before the men of the city decide to retaliate against our gang, the lipstick lacerators. As Rapunzel puts it, no one's going to take kindly to a bunch of ch**nies running around beating up cis dudes. Valaria, Rapunzel, and I have been teaching the other girls how to fight properly. While I've had the most formal martial arts training, Valaria has had the most experience. She moves with the look of someone who's been in dozens, maybe hundreds of fights, and won them all. When Valaria fights, her gaze is cool and steady. She does it because she has to, because she believes in what she's fighting for. She doesn't love it the way I do. I'm going to skip a bunch. We run into a group of men carrying baseball bats and pool cues in a park at the end of the Street of Miracles. They spot us, a group of femmes wearing our bejeweled masks, and it's immediately clear that they've been hunting us, just like we've been hunting them. There are maybe 10 or 12 of them, all big guys with gorilla fists and mean faces, a dozen of them to the seven of, of us femmes, two of them to one of us. But we got them outnumbered, girls, says Valaria, stepping forward. Her voice rings across the park. One of the men, the biggest and nastiest looking, sneers, we're gonna f you up, you bunch of fats. How about we cut off your dicks for you? You like that? Please, says Rapunzel. One of us has got more balls than all of you combined. That's it for the men. They roar and charge us. The world dissolves into a swirl of fists, feet, and flying teeth in the moonlight. One of them rushes me, baseball bat upraised, and I take him out cleanly with a huge arcing punch to the face that snaps his head back and sends a lightning bolt of pain through the bones in my hand, wrist, and arm. The pain sends me into a frenzy, and I snatch up the bat and slash it through the air at the next man. It bounces off his collarbone with a cracking sound, and he howls and falls to his knees. I kick him in the nose and feel it cave under the sole of my shoe. He screams again and grabs my ankle, twisting it, and I go down on my back. Instantly, another man drops down, straddling me and pinning my wrists with one hand, choking me with the other. I struggle to breathe, and the whole world slows down. All around me, the femmes are locked in combat. Valaria has the leader guy in an arm lock and is repeatedly slamming his head into a tree. Ivana jumps onto a barrel-chested bald man's back, clawing at his eyes, and he grabs her arms and flips her over his head so she hits the ground. I hear the sound of her bones snapping. Ying wails and rams the guy. Esperanza screams as one of them drags her down by the hair, punching her repeatedly in the gut. We're losing. We're losing. I can't breathe. No air. No air. The edges of my vision go fuzzy gray. The man on top of me bucks and brays in triumph. His hips grinding mine and bees bees killer ble bees flood my veins and then valaria lets out a long war cry that pierces the graying fabric of my consciousness and cracks the night in half in her voice i hear the howling of coyotes the roaring of an insect swarm echoing through ancient forests and caverns rushing to carve through mountain canyons and beneath that the voice of a woman violated and raged and just for a moment as my lungs scream and my ears ring with valaria's cry the full moon seems to transform to take on the shape of a face of a luminescent woman with rounded cheeks and full lips under long lashed clothes 
closed eyes, masses of curly hair. Her eyes open and she whispers, live. Okay, so that's part of that chapter. So my next book, I Hope We Choose Love, um, is a book about resisting, resisting with love, um, being an extremist for love, in the words of Martin Luther King. And this particular um, excerpted essay is about, really about Canlit and artistic spaces. It's called A School for Storytellers. So I used to be really enamored of the idea of the poet, storyteller, writer as a teacher, a healer, and community facilitator. The belief that if you are going to put out stories and ideas into the world, or transmit stories from other people and generations, you also had a responsibility to engage in dialogue about those stories. I believed, and still do, to some extent, that since your words touch real people and draw from real narratives, that you have to be accountable for their impact in the world. With time, however, I guess I'm realizing, though, just how much interpersonal intensity is directed towards storytellers, especially in the current moment of social media and celebrityism. So story listeners are, as always, searching for personal meaning in the story. It's only natural to assume that this meaning comes from the storyteller herself. What this looks like is questions for the storyteller, or anger directed at the storyteller, or a request for the storyteller to become a mentor, slash teacher, slash friend, slash replacement parent, slash priest. Without always knowing it, audiences ask for non-consensual intimacy from the storyteller, partially because the act of receiving a story can feel incredibly intimate. A story can make us feel known and seen in ways that previously seemed impossible. What is important to understand, however, is that the storyteller is not the story. They are two separate things, even when the storyteller has created the story and is responsible for its existence. There is a difference between ethical storytelling, which is about sourcing story material ethically and building ethical relationships with one's audience, and assuming that the storyteller can meet one's needs for intimacy, for mentorship, or for the provision of meaning in a terrifying universe. In the first place, a storyteller's job is partly to trouble meaning, to question meaning, to unseat our desire for moral certainty and universal truth. In the second, the storyteller is an artist, which is not in itself a qualification for healing work. It is a qual qualification for artistic work. And given that art frequently springs from a place of trauma, it is possible that artists are less suited on average than the general population for healing or mentoring work, which demands a certain level of responsibility and stability from the healer slash mentor. Two things about this worry me. One is the tendency of the public to give power and credence to storytellers who don't recognize their own limitations and set themselves up as false prophets, misusing their position to exploit and harm others. The other is the potential for harm to storytellers who are forced into positions of responsibility, scrutiny, and leadership they may not be ready for. At times, storytellers are held hyper-accountable and are silenced, shamed, or stalked by story listeners who are asking for too much. I'm going to skip a bunch. What is the role of the storyteller, then, in society and in community? What are the responsibilities and needs of a storyteller? Who is a storyteller accountable to? What should a storyteller not be expected to do? Why do we tell stories in the first place? And for whom? In my dreams, there is a mythical school for storytellers, which is a great wide garden by the sea. In this garden, there are huge rocks, chunks of lava hardened into stone and whittled by the wind into mysterious shapes that seem to be always changing, a pond full of golden fish and a wooden bridge arching over it with a bench in the middle. There is a pavilion 
surrounded by wild rose, bush, rose bushes, and there are small wooden buildings, each with a fireplace and comfortable chairs, and shelves full of books and puppets, costumes and masks and musical instruments. Here, the young storytellers come to share and hone their gifts. They are tutored in the craft by mentors, each of whom has taken responsibility for the development of specific apprentices selected for a careful match of interest, medium, and style. Much time is spent in conversation, not only the creation and refinement of stories, but also on the development of a broad ethos of storytelling. Storytellers are prepared to answer the question, with answers that surely enough will evolve over time, of why they tell stories and why people listen to them. They grapple with the purpose of story, the meaning of story, the who and what and where and when of telling a story. They practice the skills of creating and defending boundaries for themselves and the stories they bring into the world. In this sacred temple of storytelling, there is room for expansiveness, for the release of trauma, but also a mindful awareness that the story and its telling are not and will never be a revolution in themselves. The story is a dream of healing, but it is not healing. The body must heal itself. The story is a dream of revolution, but the people must make their own revolutions. The story is a dream of love and the seed of love and a map for love, but it takes people, not stories, to love each other. And here, the storyteller learns that the life of story and the life of the story are separate, though intertwined. The storyteller comes to understand the telling of a good story is not the same as living a full life, though one informs the other. The storyteller learns that love, that the love a story li listener has for the story is not the same as the love of one person for another. And so the storyteller is at once free to tell their stories and to live beyond and outside of them. I can only dream of such a school for storytellers. Thanks, y'all. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.